Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using hashtag SceneFromAbove. Launches. We've had 73 payloads launched since we last spoke. Oh, Previously, 36. Yeah, big increase. Yeah, and the main news is 20 more next-generation Dove satellites launched on ISRO's PSLV. So it's an Indian launch vehicle, another successful deployment, uh, and they're all in, in into orbit. So Planet haven't offered any more insight as to what the next generation Dove satellite is. Oh, that was going to be my first question to you. Okay. They, they also um, announced this on April the 1st. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, but yeah, another 20 CubeSats, 20 Doves launched into orbit. The news. We had the Indian Space Agency or whoever it was responsible shooting down a satellite which created 400 pieces of orbital debris. Yeah, not cool. Yeah, exactly. And NASA have come out and said this is unacceptable. And Planet have come out and said, while we acknowledge, as you said, we we use the Indian Space Agency to, to launch a lot of our doves, we really think that space should be used for peaceful purposes. I get the impression that Planet uses the Indian launchers quite a lot. That's right, yeah. They do split it up around the world. It's okay. like a de-risking. It's an interesting thing for India to be doing, though, because I think China have also, in the past, used one of these anti-satellite missiles. Mm. And again, to, to condemnation. There's people in space on the ISS at the moment, and this was at a low altitude below the ISS, but still. Not that far below, was it? This goes back to our first conversation that we had, isn't it? Which is how much stuff is in space. You know, it's like saying a bus in Oxford uh, could hit a bus in London. And you think, well, that doesn't sound very likely. But even so. So my first bit of news is software related. And it's to do with SentinelSat, which is a project that is hosted on GitHub. Where else? And it allows you to basically search, download retrieve the metadata for Sentinel satellite images. And it has a Python API and a command line interface as well. But I just wanted to say that basically there's a new version that's come out. So if you use this, it's time to um, update your software. And there's a number of different bug fixes and Python 3.7 is now supported as well. So head on over to the link that we'll put in the show notes and update your software if you use this. And have a look at it if you don't. I'm liking what I see, actually. I might give this a go. I think you should do the Deep Learning and SAR one. Deep Learning and SAR. This is an article written by Capella Space. And I wanted to say this was Blog of the Month. It's been shared by a lot of people. Yeah, including me. I've shared it around quite a few people that I know. So, so what are your sort of thoughts? I thought it was a really good introductory piece. This whole notion of deep learning, I think we've got over the hump of the hype cycle people are beginning to use deep learning in a much more nuanced way for specific things. The blog post 
that we're mentioning from Capella Space goes through the, the main things you can do with deep learning, which is sort of object detection, mm. uh, land cover classification, change detection, that sort of thing, as well as introducing some of the other things such as data augmentation. And it's it's that data augmentation that I really am interested in. I, when I was at the Big Data from Space conference, someone was demonstrating how you could use Sentinel-1 data to basically reduce the amount of cloud in Sentinel-2 data. And vice versa, you could use some of the information in Sentinel-2 to reduce the speckle in Sentinel-1. Yeah. I love this idea of being able to make better looking, I'll say that at this point, better looking data sets. I would need to go into it in a bit more detail to see whether or not they're still sort of physically meaningful, scientifically meaningful in terms of what is output from them. But I, I think this area is now beginning to really be something where people are looking to see what they can pull out of it. And when you have a, a data set as rich and as high quality as the Sentinel-1 data set, then really it's going to come down to what we think we can get out of that information using these these techniques and technologies. Yeah, I mean, I saw this article being shared a lot. And my first reaction was like, I don't really like the image that they're sharing at the top. <laughs> I know that sounds a bit picky, but okay. sort of purpley green, browny color. My initial emotional reaction was like, oh, maybe I'm alone in thinking that oh it's a risky thing to say because someone's going to show, show me an amazing one but when you create rgb images from sar data mm. they tend to look to me slightly irregular yeah they do but i would challenge you and i would say that's not the point it's telling you information about changes in the backscatter i wouldn't approach trying to look at a, a composite SAR image in a way that was trying to make it look nice necessarily. Some do. I'm sort of being a bit picky, but for initial image, I was sort of like, oh, okay. We could go through this line by line. Did you like the colour of the title? <laughs> well, honestly, <laughs> what really, really impressed me about this article was the sheer number of links to academic research and examples. They all go to open access research. So you right. can get the PDF. This post should be your landing page for using SAR data. Yeah. Really good. Really, really good. Links to everything that you want to know about, really, when you're reading through it. The, the questions that come up in your head, it's like, oh, no, there's a link for that. So I wanted to quickly mention, released on April the 1st, so was it an April <laughs> Fool's joke or not? RadarSat1 data set of 36,500 images released to the public. Hooray. So I haven't even tried to access this data um, and I'm always super conscious of when something gets released on April the 1st. And I'm always like, oh, is that a joke? It isn't a joke from wider investigation. Uh, and certainly people on Twitter have been trying to access it. It's the accessibility of this data. 36,500 images. What I've seen, it's not easy to get hold of the images. You have to set up an account. You have to go here. You have to get permission to download this. You know, it's... Right, okay, yeah. I haven't done it myself. Um, maybe I should give it a go. I'm really pleased that... We've got another set of open satellite data. It just adds to the ever-increasing pool of it. Again, I agree with you. It's brilliant that it's been made open. 
uh, and there's some really interesting data sets on the Natural Resources Canada Open Data Portal. It's a big thumbs up to the Canadian Space Agency and Canada Centre for Mapping and Earth Observation to release that amount of data. I mean, that's a significant release. If anyone is using those data sets, why not tweet about it and let us know? Okay, I've got two quick news articles about forestry. So the first one came from a tweet that I saw from Plymouth Marine Lab, and it references an article on the BBC, and it's basically that scientists discover tallest tropical tree. So we'll put both links in the show notes. This I thought was quite cool. So researchers from the University of Oxford carried out 3D scans and drone flights to confirm something that a team from the University of Nottingham had seen last year in Borneo. This is what scientists are saying is the world's tallest tropical tree, measuring more than 100 metres. And then the second one is, do you have a forest monitoring tool? Because if you do, then the Group on Earth Observations Global Forest Observation Initiative, GFOI, is looking for inputs into what they're calling the Registry of Forest Monitoring Tools. The idea behind this is to try and support countries in monitoring their forests with the idea of accounting for greenhouse gas emissions and deforestation and all the usual things. So if you do have a tool and you're interested in sharing that with practitioners who are actively involved in trying to manage these forest areas, uh, then it might be worth checking out the link that we'll put in the show notes. I think that's about it. And that's it for the news. Right, topic time. This episode's topic and next episode's topic is the slightly delayed discussion on the DIAS. Or DIAS. <laughs> system, which hopefully someone will correct us. <laughs> it stands for Data and Information Access Services. Yeah. I'm going to read a little bit from the ERSC DIAS comparison page. Please do check it out to give you a little bit of background. Basically, it's five cloud-based platforms. and The, the aim is to facilitate and standardize the access to the Copernicus data and information. So it's basically giving access to Sentinel data and the Copernicus operational services, but also at the same time hosting various applications and tools. And for the five, four of them are very similar. And there's one that's slightly different, which is WEC-EO. And you can go on the ERSC page to check out the data comparison tools. Why are we talking about this? Well, why, why give it the effort? The way we're going to do this discussion is over two episodes. We're going to try and each give some time to looking at these five DIAS, DIAS offerings. I'm going to have to make a decision which one <laughs> I'm going to call it. And we're going to try and give some feedback. Yeah. One of the things that we did ahead of doing this episode was just have a very quick poll of our Twitter followers just to try and understand really if people are using DIAS at the moment and whether or not they know what it is. And it was quite interesting. We asked the question, are you currently using one of the DIAS systems? If yes, let us know which one. So 13% of our respondents said yes, but uh, nobody left a comment to say which ones they were using. 69% said no, and 18% said what's DIAS. So I think that in itself, although it's a 
a quick and dirty poll on Twitter, I think that in itself shows why this episode and next episode is actually going to be quite useful because people aren't using the systems at the moment and more or less 20% of our respondents didn't even know what it is. Uh, Now is a good time to be going through these. To sort of kick off this part as a sort of introduction, I'll hold my hands up right now and say I probably didn't realise what DS was going to be and my expectation was that it was going to be something like a European Google Earth Engine type system. Okay, so I would say... I think that my expectations were greater than what is being delivered. But I don't know how much of that comes down to what I think is required in order to make data more accessible, or how much comes down to the way that the whole DIAS program has been promoted, because it has been promoted as a series of platforms that will change the way that users access satellite and Copernicus data sets and will make it very easy to use. My initial expectation was that it was going to be like a free GDBX Earth Engine, an advanced Copernicus Sci-Hub that you would search and you would be able to do something and it would be returned to you sort of instantly. It was going to be aimed at people who weren't necessarily technical, but they were interested in using satellite data. And I kind of think in my head the use case, and I'm clearly wrong, would have been I'm interested in flooding on River X over the last sort of six or seven months, what can the imagery tell me? And translate that into some sort of usable interface like Earth Engine could do. Yeah. Having looked a little bit deeper, this is not what Dias was. Have I said it right now? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think initially when it got launched and the contracts got signed, there's large contracts for these services. There's five companies. Well, they're consortia, aren't they? Yeah. I don't see five companies surviving. So that's an interesting point about this. As I understand it, each one of these has to be commercially successful. And certainly the four main non-climate Earth observation ones, if I can put it like that. So Mundi, Onda, Creodias, and Soblue. My understanding, and I, I hope that one of those or all of those systems will get in touch if I have this wrong. But my understanding is that they need to be commercially competing systems and that funding is going to be removed from them so that those most successful commercially will stay within the market because people will be using them. So my understanding is currently there are four commercially competing systems. They're going to come down to one or two commercially viable platforms And that's going to take round about three to five years. Okay. And my original expectation was that it was going to be super easy to access data and it was going to be cleaned data. And it was basically going to be like a level above what is currently available through the Sci-Hub. Yeah, I I was thinking along similar lines to you. And maybe given the complexity of the sort of multi-spatial and temporal dimensions and all the different data sets that are in there, I was asking too much. I think it's still quite early days. We've still got quite a few more years of, of these contracts to run. I would agree with that. It's sort of in the ramping up stage. I know I keep harking on about how I went to Big Data from Space Conference, but when I was there in February, two of the platforms were represented in the demo room. So that was Monday and SoBlue. They did seem to be on a drive to try and get users onto their system. I think you're right. I think it's early stages. They're in the ramp up phase where they're really trying to probably find easy ways to explain what it is they do. Because I think that is something that maybe both of us underestimate. I suppose because we're in the industry, we had an idea of what we wanted. And I don't think it's quite meeting that. 
expectation yet. But I think they're trying to work out how to state what it is that they're doing and at the same time to get users to come in and create use cases. Someone said, you like Google Earth Engine, you wait to see what we're doing with Dias. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> so that's a big statement. That is a big statement to say. Yeah. Yeah. Just just to clarify, no, none of the companies or the consortiums have said this. <laughs> or <laughs> certainly I have witnessed saying this. What we've got five consortiums with five different data discovery, search and discover um, Copernicus data amongst other data sets and a varying degree of different services associated to this data and a series of cloud backends and most commonly virtual environments. Was the scope what I was expecting it to be? No. Would I put this as the scope? No. They are meeting the requirements that have been asked of them. And like I say, they are in the process of trying to get more users and more use cases. So I, I expect to see more development, certainly over this year and into the beginning of next year. But I question whether we need five different access points to the data. Something that I was thinking about when I was looking through the different systems, it was whose problem are they trying to solve here? Is it the users, so the, the people who search and download the data and then try and process it? Is it so is it our problem that they're trying to solve? Or is it the server admins of this current Sci-Hub who are just, you know, maybe they're getting to a point where there's so much interest in Sentinel and, and Copernicus data that there's a need from their perspective because there are so many other cloud-based services and platforms and portals out there at the moment. Does the user need another five systems to try and choose between? So I'm very interested to see how it's going to pan out over the next 18 months. You said that you were interested to see how this thing is going to play out over the next few years. I think that's quite indicative. You're almost saying... I'm going to be on the sidelines to see how this goes. And that's why I'm confused as to who the user is. Because if it's you, then you don't want to be on the sidelines. You want to be getting in there and using this data and interacting with your chosen dias. If it's not for a specialist who already knows how to get hold of this data, who already knows how to use GDAL and Orpheo Toolbox and could have some knowledge about spinning up their own cloud server, if this is to enable the non-specialist user, then it's got to be super easy. I asked this question on Twitter. If you are a non-specialist user, how likely are you to download a cloudy image? I can't find any statistics on this, but I just can't believe anybody is that interested in downloading a cloudy image. Yeah. So why on earth do we present 20 cloudy images to users? Yeah. They just don't want them, I think. Yeah. The default setting should be, you're interested in this area, we've got two cloud-free images over the last two years. I mean, that would be really smart if someone could say, this small area is where my area of interest is, which is within a scene or a tile or, or whatever, and say how cloudy that bit is. That would be really smart. I can kind of self-filter to find the image that I want. It takes time, but I can do it. But we know what we're looking for. Well, we like to pretend we do. <laughs> 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 no, we, we, we should know what we're, we're looking for. That's why I think we're not necessarily going to be drawn into more search and discovery. Why go to the pain of using this to discover information that I already know how to discover? If there's an API, maybe these are, are more designed for the, the web developer or the, the Python scripter. At no point ever really should these systems throw up cloudy images for the user, particularly if they're saying that they're easy to use. 
I think if I was to build a search and discovery, I would just say this search and discovery only supplies 10% or less cloudy images. Yeah. Everything else is sort of not ingested. We're trying to hit the 80% of users side. This is really tough. I feel like we're being a little bit down on the DS systems. But at the moment, as a specialist user of Earth observation data, A, I don't know which of the four I should be looking at. I've looked at all four. They all seem much of a muchness. So B, why wouldn't I just use the Sci-Hub? And if it's because it's slow and I can only do two downloads at a time or whatever, okay, so why don't I then go and use Cloudio or Adam or EOX or GBDX or One Atlas Sandbox or Sentinel or, or Google? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any of these, you know, there's so many. So would it come down to price? I don't know because, again, it wasn't easy to find out information about costing and prices. I accept there is a need for something like the DS systems, but more like the DS systems I think you and I have in our heads. These consortia have met what is required of them in the scope, but maybe the scope wasn't the scope that it was required, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. If I'm supposed to be the user, then I need to be told. Okay, yeah. And I, I don't mean someone's in me an email saying, hey, you, you know, this is aimed at you. It needs to be obvious to me that it's going to be so much more advantageous. Yeah. I think that's a good point to uh, pause. Yeah. So we're going to basically look at Monday on the Creodias and SoBlue. And we're going to look at Wekio. It's a different thing. It and is, yeah. Yeah, let's include them all. And have a look at the ERSC comparison site. Yeah. If we've got it totally wrong, we'd absolutely hold our hands up. This is new to us. You know, we're totally impartial and always keen to see new things coming online. Any critical comments are not meant in any way to be putting the services down. It's just trying to take a objective view. Trying to understand where they sit in the sort of wider ecosystem of, of Earth observation platforms. If you're part of the DS consortia and there's something you think we've missed or you specifically want us to, to have a look at, get in touch through seenfromabovepodcast at gmail.com. Similarly, if you're a user of the systems, then tweet us through at eoseenfrom, hashtag seenfromabove. And if you've just started looking into these yourselves and you've got any thoughts, comments, or if there's something you want Andrew or myself to look at specifically and we are able to, then also ping us a message through Twitter and we'll try our best to do that. Yep, absolutely. If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Matt underscore Andrew. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And that's it for now. Cheers, Andrew. Cheers. Bye. Talking of being a bit scripted, let's get on with the intro. <laughs> <laughs>
podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.